Take our Bibles and turn together to 2 Samuel chapter 22. We've been looking at the story of David. David is an unusual character. I, I imagine he's unlike most of the men, ladies, that you know. On the one hand, of course, David is this great military figure, able to go into battle, chop off the heads of giants, uh, kill them with a stone slingshot, lead his armies into battle, sneak behind enemy lines and uh, embarrass them by his success. He is a warrior. He, he is a, a man's man, I imagine, if ever there was one. And yet he's also this unusual phenomenon. He is a man who is able to express himself in words like what he's feeling, you know. You know what he's really feeling. I know that's what you've got to guess at most of the time because really you've no idea what's going on inside his head. Because talk about how he's feeling is something that men don't do. Not if you're a real man. David kind of blows away that, that illusion, doesn't he? Because here is a real man who is able to express himself. And this is really, this is really dodgy. He expresses himself in poetry. I know it is scary, but it's true. And uh, we have an example of this here in this great, in this great passage that we've been reading. In fact, this, which is his personal outpouring of his heart, he will modify and we'll have it in the Bible as Psalm 18, which is to be sung and said by the people of God as they're worshiping. But, but here it's this is at its most personal, its most intimate, its most heartfelt. This is the original David who's speaking here in 2 Samuel 22. We don't know when he wrote it, but here it is. And what is significant about this particular song of David is that it is one of the bookends around this great book of Samuel. The very first is in 1 Samuel chapter 1, which is the beginning of the book. There we have the song of Hannah who is the mother of Samuel. And when God answers her prayer and tells her she's going to have a baby, she writes a song. And that song is controlling of the rest of the story. The whole of the book of Samuel, in many ways, is the outworking of Hannah theology, as she expresses it there. And now at the end of the book, we have the song of David. We don't know when he wrote it, but it's placed here by the author to demonstrate that Hannah's theology has been fulfilled. David, as he reflects on his life, on the events of his life, sees the fulfillment of what Hannah saw in her song. So there are various things that connect the two songs together. There's the use of the word horn where the energy of an animal charging against you is focused on the horn, a picture of strength and power. We have the use of the word rock. God is a rock. And we have the general theme in both songs of God's intervention on behalf of his people. God intervenes to rescue his people. And uh, this, uh, and then both songs end by referring to the king and calling him the Lord's Messiah or anointed one. So all of those links come, bring these two songs together and act as the bookends, the, 
if you will, the theological bookends of this book of Samuel that we've been studying together. Because Hannah, as she looks forward, is looking forward from a time when there is no king in Israel, and she looks forward to God sending a king who will act in the true strength of the Lord, not in the false strength of the nations roundabout, but rather in dependence upon God. And what David is doing now as he reflects on his past life is emphasizing that what Hannah saw is true, that what Hannah says is right, that in fact the king is just a second in command, that the real king of Israel is the Lord of hosts himself. He is the real king. And because he is the real king, what it does is demolish all the false pretensions of the little earthly king who acts on his behalf. It blows away all the power politics. It destabilizes human government because it recognizes the government of God. Then the second thing about the, this song of, of David here is that it is immediately followed by his last words that we're going to look at next time in chapter 23. And that is an echo of what we find in Deuteronomy 32 and 33, the end of Moses' life. Moses, who is the first great prophet, major prophet of Israel. Uh, here we have David, who's also been a prophet, the New Testament tells us. And uh, Moses, at the end of his life, has a great song of deliverance, like David, and immediately after that, his blessing on the people, uh, his last words to the people. So David is alongside Moses, one of the great figures of the Bible. Thirdly, the song has a melodic line. If you go to a concert uh, and you hear the Philadelphia Orchestra playing some great piece of music, you'll notice that there is a melodic line that the uh, composer has that, that is repeated over and over again in different ways throughout, the, throughout the, the piece. And as you read this psalm, there is a melodic line that reappears over and over again. And that is the idea of the power of God released to act on behalf of the Lord's anointed, the king, to bring him from danger and rescue him and bring him into freedom and joy. The recipient of the song, here's the next thing, the recipient of the song is the Lord himself. People in Israel had all kinds of ideas as to why it was they won battles. Sometimes early on in the book of Samuel, we saw there were people who thought that just because you carry in the Ark of the Covenant into the battle, that that carrying of the Ark will act ex opere operato by virtue of the work performed just by having it there means God has to turn up and God has to fight for you because you've done the business. Well, that idea was blown out of the water early on in the book of Samuel. Then there was the idea, well, if God gives us a king to go into battle with us, then we'll win our battles because the king is there. He is the key. Have the king, have the victory. And that was blown out of the water. And here David is saying, here is the bottom line. The whole story of God, of Israel, the whole story of the victory of Israel over its enemies. Here is the perspective that I as your king, I as your anointed king, this is my perspective. That from beginning to end, the story really only has one hero. 
There is only one rescuer, one savior, one who has acted on behalf of his people, and that is the Lord God of Israel. And you can see this. You can see this if you look at the key verse. Every poem is a key verse that kind of unlocks the meaning of the rest, and this is the same here. The key verses are at the very end of this poem in verses 50 and 51. Listen to the king. For this I will praise you, Yahweh, Jehovah, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Why? Here's the answer. Great salvation, that is rescue, deliverance, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love for his anointed, his Messiah, to David and his offspring forever. So there's the key. The key is God is to be praised because God has caused his king, his anointed, to be rescued for the sake of the nations, not just Israel, but the nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles, are going to benefit from God's rescue of the king. Now those last words that are the key to this passage raise a question, and here is the question. Who are we listening to in this song? Who are we listening to? Are we listening simply to David's personal testimony? This is David talking about himself, period, full stop, end of sentence, that's it. Is, is that what's happening here? Or are we listening to David as an anointed prophet of God, speaking not only about the Messiah, but speaking as the Messiah, as the office holder in his day, the office holder of the office of anointed, i.e. Messiah. Are we listening to David speaking the words of Jesus? Now, how can we answer that question? I'm going to tell you, of course, because that's why I asked it. I don't answer questions, ask questions I can't answer, okay? Because I don't want you to get confused. Because then I would get confused. And you don't want me confused, because that would be very confusing. So, here's my answer to that question. My answer to that question is to ask ourselves, where in the rest of the Bible is this Song of David used and explained? The answer is in Romans chapter 15. In Romans chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, Paul is writing about the Messiah. He's writing to, he's writing to people in the church in Rome that are many of them Gentiles like us. They're, they belong to the nations. They don't belong to the people of God. But he refers to Jesus in talking to them about Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. And he says this, I tell you that the Messiah, Christ, came, became a servant to the circumcised, that is, to the Israelites, to the Jews. For what reason? To show God's truthfulness. Why? In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. For what reason? In order that the Gentiles, that is, the nations, might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, here is the Messiah speaking, as it is written, Therefore, I will praise you, 
among the Gentiles, that is, among the nations, and sing to your name, quoting verse 50 of 2 Samuel 22. In other words, in the words of this psalm, the apostle hears expressed prophetically the praise which Jesus and his people, drawn from the Gentile nations, his believing people, converted to him, would offer to the Father in the final days. The Gentiles join the king in offering praise to God and glorifying God for what? For his mercy. They praise God for his mercy. Now that quotation, I think, from this key part of David's song alerts us to the fact that we are listening to the voice of David, yes, but even more significantly for you and I, the voice of Jesus. And because we are Jesus people, we can think of it as also listening to our voices since we are in him. So keep that in mind as we unpack it together. What are we listening to? Number one, we are listening to the voice of a believer. We're listening to the voice of a believer. Look at the opening words there. For I tell you, sorry, where am I? Uh, yeah, I've lost the page. Here, three, four, that's right, that's the one. The thing, that's, the thing that don't often go by my pages, but I have something that I've written in long hand here that I can't read. And what it says is that in these opening, yeah, I'm better forgetting about them. What it says is that in these opening verses, you find David at his most intimate and personal. Do you notice the use of the pronoun my that repeats over and over and over again? David has an astute sense of God in every area of his life. What, whatever is wrong with David, whatever things he did wrong, whatever sins he committed, and he committed sins and he did many things wrong, the one thing you have to say about David is he has an acute sense of God. So that when he sins uh, against uh, Bathsheba and against Uriah, the sin of adultery and murder, and he goes to God about it, do you remember what it is that motivates him to go to God? He is so aware that what his sin has done is to offend to offend the heart of God. So in his repentance, his concern is about the heart of a, of a God whom he has offended. And so in this song, when he is really conscious of all the things that God has done for him, all the good that God has done for him, all the many blessings that God has given to him, all those rescues that God had performed on his behalf, it is to God he goes and he says, oh, I may have had a part in it and I may have done this and that and the other thing, but ultimately, ultimately, it is God who rescued me. And so he goes to God and he says, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. He's using covenantal language which is always personal language because men and women of God have been brought into this relationship with God whereby God says to us I will be God to you and you will be my people what that means is God is saying you can call me my God 
my God and my Savior. Martin Luther says, you can sum up the Christian life in personal pronouns. He loved me. He gave himself for me. The Christian life is all about taking personally all the promises of God, all the achievement of Christ, everything that God has put in place within the covenant of grace, and being able to look God in the eye and say, you are my God, my God. It lies at the very heart of the message. This is no, this is no mere reverential, respectful approach. You can only say this if you've come recognizing your unworthiness to God and clinging on to all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ. We hear the voice of a believer here. It's the voice of David, yes. It's the voice of the Lord Jesus. In his humanity throughout his entire life, he goes to his father and he calls him, My Father my God. Jesus uses this covenantal language because in his humanity, he's where you and I are. He is a believer in God. And if you're a believer, you too can use these, this language as you address God. But secondly, we're listening not only to the voice of a believer, we're listening to the voice of a sufferer. Look at verses 5 to 10. Here's why he's so full of praise. Here was his predicament. The waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Here they are, waves and torrents, the cords and snares. Here is bondage. Here is danger. Here is a life threatened in his experience. And David had that kind of experience. He says on one occasion to Jonathan, his friend, there is but a step between me and death. Hounded down by Saul, having, having spears thrown at you, I mean, that, you know, and missing, just missing. I mean, that, that's kind of a, you know, that is an unsettling experience, shall we say. And he is the nation's most wanted. Wherever you went in the nation, there it is, and I'm the most wanted. David is number one. Saul wants to kill David. And there's no doubt that David had a life like this. But when you look at this language here, is he merely engaging in hyperbole? Is he exaggerating for effect? Is he merely just getting all poetical on us? Or is he telling us something more here? Who has experienced the waves of death, been encompassed by them, the torrents of destruction being assailed by them, the cords of Sheol being entangled by them, the snares of death being confronted by them? And the answer is that in every particular, in every particular, Jesus has endured these things in his humanity, experiencing, experiencing the effects of our sin. He experiences the judgment that we deserve. He experiences death on our behalf. He who was sinless experienced these things. And as you read about David the sufferer, you read about Jesus the sufferer. And the language, at least metaphorically, sometimes applies to you and me. Some of us sitting in this room may very well feel that that's been our life, maybe not to the extent of David or Jesus, but nonetheless, 
It feels like the waves of death, and it feels like the torrents of destruction, and it feels like the cords of Sheol are pulling us down to hell. It feels like the snares of death are ready to trip us up at any moment. It just feels like that. And you need to know that you can sing this song because it feels like that. And because the Lord can rescue you. So we're listening to David the sufferer. Thirdly, we're listening to the victor here, the victor here. Because it was the experience of David that when he was hard-pressed, he prayed and the Lord heard him. Look at verse 7. In my distress, I called upon Yahweh, the Lord. To my God I called from his temple. He heard my voice and my cry came to his ears in his distress not only in David's distress that was his experience and it's true but it was also Jesus experience Isaiah 53 speaks about the travail of his soul the, the anguish the turmoil of the soul of the Messiah servant as he's as he's in the world the writer to the Hebrews tells us that our Lord Jesus cried out to God with strong cries and tears. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he is confronted by this great cup of suffering, knowing that it bubbles over with the wrath of God, he says to his Father, 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 if you're willing, please, please remove this cup from me. Take it away. Take it away. He wasn't acting. He wasn't playing a game. In his humanity, he shrinks at his sinless soul becoming sin for us. He shrinks at the thought of his Father with whom he has had an eternity of love and affection, turning his back from his own dear Son. He shrinks and he cries out to his Father. What David says is, the Lord heard. Look at verse 8. The Lord heard. What happened? Well, David says everything became unglued. The, the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. This is the kind of language you find used of uh, the exodus from Egypt. When God said all those plagues and all those things that, that unsettled the Egyptians and allowed them to let the Israelites go free. It takes you back to Mount Sinai when God came down and visited and he landed on Mount Sinai and there was earthquake and flame and fire and terror in the hearts of the people. God showed up. And you ask yourself, where in the life of David did any of that stuff happen? And the answer is nowhere in the life of David did any of that stuff happen. Do you know in the life of David there is no miracle, there's no phenomena that you find in other parts of the Bible. The kind of phenomena you find in Moses and the kind of phenomena you find later on with Elijah and Elisha, you don't find any of that in the life of David. David is more like you and me. In our experience and the experience of the church today, there are no miracles like that. There are none, none of these shock and awe kind of experiences that you find under Moses and under Elijah and Elisha. No. Our experience is more like David. So you ask yourself, what is he talking about? What he's talking about when God showed up and rescued him. When he was in danger from Saul, God used ordinary means to deliver him. 
And he's looking at these ordinary means. I think some of the commentators are right to say he's looking at these ordinary things that happen in his life. These many rescues from illness, from death, from slander, from whatever. These little rescues that have happened. And he says, you know, God was behind them. It was as if God came, like he came at Sinai. But he's also speaking as a prophet. And you read the text and you ask yourself, where, where in the history of the world were this where these phenomenon manifested again the earthquake and the darkness and the storm and the shaking of the heavens. You go to Calvary, you go to the place where Jesus died. And there you see, as Jesus dies, the terrible darkness, you remember, that descended for that three-hour period, that midday midnight that was so dark, like the darkness of Egypt. A darkness that could be felt that pervaded the whole area that pervaded your soul. It was a darkness that was heavy. It was the darkness of the Son of God going into that place of judgment on behalf of His people, into that place where He takes their guilt on His own sinless conscience, where He takes their punishment on His own body on the tree, that darkness out of which He cries to His Father, my God, why have you forsaken me? That darkness. That moment. After the darkness. When he has recovered. When suddenly the sweet smile of his father's face is with him again. The joy of entering his father's company fills his heart. And there as he ends his life at his own decision and he cries out finished victory the veil of the temple is torn the whole place is shaken by the earthquake of God's dealing with sin the world is put on notice that God Almighty has done something of enormous significance there on the cross Dead people get up out of their graves and go padding around Jerusalem, terrifying the living daylights out of people. And three days later, the first resurrection, the first real resurrection. An earthquake. The stone is rolled away. And what does God do? God saves his king. God rescues his king from the snares of death, from the destruction of Sheol. He saves his king and brings life to his king. That's what David is talking about in verse 17. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, the last enemy who is death. He brought me into a broad place from the constrictions of the tomb to the broad place. He rescued me. Here is the message of Easter. Death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him from rising again. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. 
This is our Jesus. The king is saved by God. Why? Why is he saved? Look at the word that's used here. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. He delighted in me. Now there's a sense in which God delights in all of his children. You need to know this. You're one of God's children. God delights in you. You are the apple of his eye. Don't know if you were ever bullied at school, but maybe you were bullied and somebody else, perhaps an older brother or a friend, came along to the bullies who were pushing you around, and they said to those bullies, we see you. You touch a him, we smash a your face. <laughs> well, he said it not quite like that in Glasgow, but it was words to that effect. And what God says to the world, you touch my people, I smash your face. Judgment. God will not hold the world guiltless for how it treats the church of God. We think of that Iranian pastor in prison for preaching the gospel. Let me tell you, people will answer for persecuting the church of God. You are the apple of God's eye. But I want you to notice why did the Lord delight in the king? Look at this. Verses 21 and 25, bracket a section, and give us the answer. The Lord, Yahweh, dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. That's verse 21. Verse 25, brackets that little section. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. So those two verses act as a frame around those words in the middle, 22 to 24. Why does he delight in this figure? He delights in him because of his righteousness. Now you say, now, how could that apply to me? How could it apply to David? We all know David's record. David, you know, he wasn't the best parent in the world. He didn't have a very good, do a good job with his kids. And yet, he's never condemned for that. In fact, even when he breaks the law of God, he is forgiven for that. Could David be talking about that relative righteousness that Jesus' people are producing? You know, we're, when we're converted, we're not saved because of our righteousness. But once we are saved, once we're in the family of God, God notices our righteousness because we are saved unto good works, towards good works that we will walk in once we know God for ourselves. And we need to say something about that righteousness. God is absolutely realistic about the kind of righteousness you can offer to him as a believer. He knows it cannot be 100%. That isn't the basis of your standing with him. He knows that we as believers are always in this life Simul justus et peccator. At one and the same time, justified and sinful. He knows that. And so you, he can, you can, for example, find in many of the Psalms that David talks about his faithfulness and so on. And what he means is basically, my, it's not the perfection of my life, but the direction of my life. 
that in spite of my falls and my failures, the direction of my life is this. My heart is for God. I've never turned aside from God towards the idols of the nations. He has my heart, and those works that I've performed in his name register with God. Now, David was absolutely honest, brutally honest about his sin. Read Psalm 51, and you'll see that. Brutally honest with his, about his sin and his flaws, but he also knew the pardon of God. But even then, we come back to this, and I say, well, somebody will say to me, some bright spark, will say to me, they'll send me an email so, in disguise, and they'll say, well, what about Romans chapter 3, where it says there's an unrighteous, no, not one? Well, that's absolutely right. It's absolutely right about the world in general. And before we become a Christian, it's true of all of us that there is none righteous, no, not one, and all our righteousnesses are but filthy rags. They don't count for anything. They don't amount to, to a hill of beans as far as God is concerned. But once you become a Christian, that does change. We're encouraged to glorify God by our righteousness. Oh, but there's something else here. Here's the problem. The problem actually is in those middle verses between those two, where the righteousness is defined. Do you notice this? I kept the ways of the Lord. I have not turned from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned from his decrees. I have been blameless. I have kept myself from sin. David, you weren't talking about you, were you? You weren't talking about yourself. Who were you talking about, David? Paul gives the answer. He's talking about the king, the Messiah, who is called Jesus, Messiah, the righteous one, the one who said, the devil cannot find anything on me. The one whose friends said of him, he did no sin, neither was there any guile on his mouth. The one who knew no sin and died the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. The lamb who is without defect or blemish, perfect, just perfect, Jesus. He's the righteous one. And ultimately what David is reaching for here is what you and I as believers can say with absolute clarity today, that our standing before God is based on our righteousness. And our righteousness sounds like this, I kept the ways of the Lord, I have not turned from my God, all his laws are before me, I have not turned from his decrees, I have been blameless, I have kept myself from sin, and you say, how can that be? That's not me. And I answer you, it can be because you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And that's what it means. God sees you as if you were like that. That's how he sees you in Christ Jesus. He sees you as perfect and as righteous as Jesus is. Well, we move to the last point very quickly. Here we see, are listening 
to a worshiper, a worshiper. And that really takes up the rest of the psalm from verse 34 onwards. He's thinking about the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God, his kingdom is God's dominion. Canada used to have a strap line that said, this dominion, his dominion. They've probably forgotten that's their strap line, but that was the original one. And uh, here he talks about the dominion of Israel, and he says it's God's. The establishment of the kingdom is God's power. Look at verses 34 and 35. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer and sets me on high places. He teaches my hands to make war. God does that. And I've done what God called me to do. Verse, he goes on to say, I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. But he understands that although he did that, he did not do that in his own strength. Look at verse 40. You equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. God did the work. God did, did the work. He established the kingdom. Back in uh, 1415, the English were having one of those regular spats they have with the French. The French are the enemy the English love to hate and would love to be able to cook as well as. I mean, it's just, that's the way it is. And Henry V, at the Battle of Agincourt, ordered, after the great victory over the French, ordered the singing of Psalm 115. And the king prostrated himself on the ground, ordered all his army to prostrate themselves on the ground, while the words pealed forth of that psalm, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, O Lord, but to thy name give glory. That is the proper posture of a worshiper. The kingdom was established by God. Secondly, very quickly, the, the scope of the kingdom is international in its flavor. Look at 44 and 45. People I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. That's the context out of which Paul has taken those words and used them in Romans chapter 15. He's saying that this song of David looks forward to a day when the goyim, the Gentiles, the nations, those who are not of Israel, will be treated as if they were, will be enfolded into the purposes of God. To use the language of Psalm 72, he will have dominion from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Desert tribes will bow to him. Enemies will lick the dust. Kings will come with their various treasures and so on and fall down before him and serve him. That's going to happen. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, with the preaching of the gospel to you in Rome, with the response of you people in Rome to the gospel, that is a signal that God is going to do this globally. There's going to be this global movement, this international movement of God, where people from all around the world are going to come to King Jesus and acknowledge him as Lord. And he reflects on that. As we close, he reflects on the promise of the kingdom. In verse 51, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. See how he roots it all? The promise of God. The promise of God is built in what? It's built on the steadfast love of the Lord. That's a word we've looked at before. Chesed. It's the word 
for covenant love, the promised love of God that he will not break because it's a solemn covenant that he has made with his people. It's telling you that God's kingdom rests on God's promise, which rests on God's character. This is the covenant that Jesus refers to. What he tells you about it, and he comes with the cup of the covenant and says, this is the cup of the covenant in my blood. The resurrection was the seal of this covenant. The resurrection was the Father's approbation of all that Jesus had accomplished as the covenant mediator and king. The blessings that belong to David belong to you and I, to his offspring, to the faithful, to everybody who believes what David believed. Neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate you from the chesed, the covenant love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is God's work. David is not simply singing about Christ. He is singing a song of Christ. He's picturing this day. He's picturing a day when the Lord Jesus comes, as it were, surrounded by his people from every tribe and nation under heaven who come around him at his throne. And there the Lord Jesus as our great worship leader leads us in a song of praise to God for this great salvation that has reached the ends of the earth. It's that day we look for. It's that day we wait for with all our hearts when the final victory will be accomplished. The salvation of the king, his resurrection, ensures that that final day will come. And it's begun. When we sing here at 10th on a Sunday morning, just take a look around you. And see the multitude of people represented here who've come from different parts of the world. And the people who are watching this from China, from the Middle East, from Europe, from South America. And remind yourself, God has already begun to fulfill the words of David. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ there is perfect righteousness for all of us unrighteous people. Thank you that it's so perfect we can read these words and think, this is what you see when you look at us because of Jesus. Thank you that you don't ignore the direction of our lives even when we fall and stumble, even when we're failures in one area or another. You accept the imperfect righteousness of our lives because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Pray you encourage our hearts that and encourage us to know that you who did not let Jesus go without help that you who intervened in the life of David when he needed it will also come to our aid to our help even in death you'll be there to meet us and to greet us on the other side give us this confidence we pray in Jesus strong name Amen.